Go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy to get 20% off your first month of cognitive behavioral therapy with weekly sessions online with a therapist in addition to worksheets, a journal, meditation and yoga videos and unlimited messaging. There's strong evidence that CBT can help people who hoard and accessing therapy online can be affordable and accessible. Find out more and get your discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder podcast. I am drowning in stuff and trying to find a way out. Listen as I explore the issues and delve deep as somebody profoundly affected by hoarding disorder. Find out more, including links to subscribe to the podcast and all my social media at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. Finally, I am not a doctor. I'm just a hoarder doing her best. So do seek professional support if and when you need it. So I am here with Dr. Jan Eppingstall, an Australian counsellor with a PhD in hoarding. I'm a big fan of people with PhDs using doctor because it's criticised often, isn't it? People go, well, you're not a medical doctor, whereas everybody I know who's done a PhD has literally gone mad at least once during the process. It's the hardest thing ever. So let's use that doctor. Um, So Dr. Jan Effingstall is a hoarding specialist and she is here to share her wisdom. Jan, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. But what you said about, oh, just what you said about people saying, but you're not a medical doctor. And I have to say, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, Yes, but it does take a fair bit of tenacity and and just persistence to try and get to the other side of it so I figure the fact that I've done it I I will use the uh the doctor title thank you very much absolutely use it absolutely I'm a big (laughs) big supporter so today we are talking about a word that I am going to stutter over at least once. We are talking about anthropomorphism, which is a big word, but it describes something that I suspect everybody does just to different degrees. So, Jan, can you start by just explaining what it means and and how common it is? I get caught on it too, anthropomorphism. (laughs) Yep. But let's define anthropomorphism. Um, Firstly, treating something not alive as if it is alive is animism. Okay. So so treating something non-human as if it's human is anthropomorphism. So animism feeds into anthropomorphism because we treat something as alive, which is animism. We tend to treat it as alive like us with all the mental you know, facilities of humans, the the mental faculties. So this behaviour kind of begins in childhood when our survival is relevant 
oh, sorry, when our survival is reliant on adults in our lives. So we collect all of this information about people, we store that all up, and we use that to kind of imagine what other people are thinking, what they do, you know, why they behave the way they do. We don't grow out of it, but we do learn to kind of correct for it. But anthropomorphism is another form of magical thinking like we've talked about before. And it's something that all humans engage in. People will treat anything as a person. It's it's just, it's within us and it's something that we just can't stop. It's just <laughs> we see faces everywhere. We see, you know, and we think everything has agency. So um, I don't think there would be many people out there who haven't thought that a storm was raging or, you know, <laughs> that uh, a tree was foreboding. Yeah, all of that sort of stuff. We give thoughts and emotions to inanimate um, or non-human entities day in, day out. I um, When I drive, I have the sat-nav on the GPS, and if she, <laughs> yeah. the, the woman in my phone, says turn left, but I don't, I swear she sounds disapproving with the next instruction that she gives me. <laughs> I swear it. <laughs> She is in there going, she's ignoring me again. I said, turn <laughs> left. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That is so true. I was, um, I just happened to be watching that show, The Middle. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an American comedy show and it's just about these, you know, uh, this family who are, you know, from the Midwest, you know, I think it was presumed somewhere in the middle of America. And the daughter, that was the episode I happened to watch, of course, was about decluttering. Of course. Why wouldn't it be? Of course. <laughs> I haven't watched the show in about 20 years, and there it is. So they're sorting through some things, and the daughter has to have a set of hot rollers for her hair. And her brother has said, Oh, let's just chuck that out. That's, it doesn't, they don't even work. And this girl's face, has just dropped. She's like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't throw those out. And the brother said, oh, I suppose you've given them all names and you you feel like they'll be, they'll feel sad, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, how did you know? (laughs) Oh my God. I rotated using different ones in the front so that they wouldn't feel left out. And I just thought, I just laughed because it's just, that is the epitome of 99.9% 99.9% of us. And that's ex- it's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? It's um, it's exactly what the whole episode's about because <laughs> it's no surprise that humans anthropomorphize all the time because we grow up with stories about rabbits and balloons and cars that are presented to us as living conscious beings. I remember Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, um, wrote a whole series of children's books about a helicopter called Budgie. Right. And there's evidence also that anthropomorphism goes back to like really ancient times. I grew up, my dad used to read Aesop's fables to me 
which is all stories about, you know, animals with a bit of a moral. And he lived around 600 BC. And Mm. so this has been around for a long time. There's speculation that cave paintings could be evidence of anthropomorphism, although that's not as clear. But so am I understanding correctly that this isn't something that's dysfunctional or pathological in itself? Yeah, exactly. It It is not something that we need to stop doing. Um, and it did. It evolved in humans because we need to see the minds, other people's minds in order to survive. It's certainly not pathological or dysfunctional. And arguably, it would be kind of inhumane of us not to attribute human-like qualities to objects and animals. We do it to better predict the behaviour of predators, prey, and people so that we can get along, belong, and thrive. Um, The opposite of anthropomorphism is dehumanisation, and we know that that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. So treating those outside our circle as less human can lead us to denial of rights, mistreatment, even elimination, and we've seen that in our history. So humans' anthropomorphic tendencies should not be eliminated, that's for sure. It's not something that we we should be uh, attempting to do. But as we discussed before, the phenomenon's really about how people understand minds, their own and others around them. And one of the things that I found really interesting when I was looking looking a bit deeper into anthropomorphism, those on the autism spectrum tend to struggle with something called theory of mind. That's the ability to represent the mental states of other people. But they are more likely to attribute mental states to objects and animals than non-autistic people. Oh, interesting. Which I found really interesting. Um, Because often those with autistic traits misunderstand the thoughts and feelings of other people. Uh, That's one of the kind of concepts around that struggling with the theory of mind. The original thesis was that those on the spectrum would then be less likely to anthropomorphize due to their inaccurate assessment of other mental states, but the opposite is actually true. And I think the reason could be that those on the spectrum are compensating and engaging in this kind of pseudo-social interactions with non-human entities to, to sort of practice and improve Mm. upon future human interactions. But unfortunately, we tend to believe non-human entities are like us and that they think like us. So when we give our stuff emotions and thoughts, we have no way of knowing if that's actually accurate Accurate because they don't have feelings and emotions. Really what we do is we project our thoughts and feelings onto them. So we're really kind of interacting with ourselves. Yeah. So does the cat really, really, really love us? Or does the cat like the fact that we put food out twice a day? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, they do tend to have some very basic sort of basic urges and and, and those sorts of things, but they they certainly can't disapprove or (laughs) feel sad or, yeah. Yeah. Those more complex things. And so how does anthropomorphism tie into hoarding? I I think um, because we project our own thoughts and emotions onto our possessions or animals, insects, plants, the health of our psyche impacts our relationship with non-human entities. So for those who hoard or anyone with a significant mental 
uh, health issue by anthropomorphizing they're attempting to compensate for feelings of for example abandonment grief loneliness depressed mood and they seek out belonging empathy control understanding unconditional love consistency through these non-human agents and they give them what they desire most in their own lives so they're almost giving themselves the things that they need via these non-human entities and so that's where we see the link with anthropomorphism and hoarding and other types of mental health issues as well I don't think it's just hoarding and because it is something that's um, commonly a human uh, behaviour, it's not only not only hoarding. And I read several theories when I was researching around this issue that people who are lonely are more prone to anthropomorphise things. I, the theory being, and it makes sense to me, if they can't have people around them, they will turn the things or the animals around them into substitute people. And I also know that there can be strong links between loneliness and hoarding. Could those ideas link together to explain some of why anthropomorphism and hoarding are so interlinked? Yeah, and I think there's some research. I think Jessica Grisham did some work. She's from the Sydney University of New South Wales, I think. She did some stuff around that. And we look for minds, especially when we need to feel in control and when we're lonely. The research kind of links those two things together. And in these situ- in these situations, which are central to typical hoarding behaviours, our mind reading kind of overflows to other entities that don't actually have minds. So it's almost just like a proliferation of that. Um, we're looking for control. We're looking for uh, to, to ease our loneliness. Um But as I said before, whatever it is that a person lacks in terms of social connections, they'll look for it in safe, non-critical agents. Um, And we're wired to connect. We need others to co-regulate our emotions and we feel, you know, and in order to feel a sense of belonging, we'll do anything to achieve this. I mean, you look at the movie Castaway and Wilson, the volleyball. I mean, that just demonstrates this perfectly. The cat lady trope, you know, we find a way to connect, even if it's pseudo-social connections, but it will always be a poor substitute, unfortunately. But that, I think, is why the link is, is is quite strong, plus the fact that the person's coping mechanism is centred around acquiring and having difficulty discarding possessions. It just means that it's on a massive scale, much bigger scale than something else. I think that's those are the main reasons that it's so interlinked. I've definitely thought things like, I can't throw that thing away or the other thing will be lonely or I can't throw that away it will feel really unappreciated and sad Mm. but if you ask me whether I genuinely thought that book or that pair of jeans had a brain and thoughts and feelings I would know objectively that they don't so what makes those thoughts so powerful for hoarders when they don't stand up to any scrutiny <laughs> at all. At all. <laughs> at all. 
I do think it is because of that compensatory nature of anthropomorphism. Um, it's very hard to treat something you've imbued with human qualities in a way that you wouldn't like to be treated. Yeah. So, you know, that projection of our thoughts and feelings onto the agent kind of triggers something deep within us. And when we say those words, you know, as we're th well, thinking in our mind, I can't throw it away because that thing will be lonely. The, lo the word lonely just kind of sets off, <laughs> sets off our nervous system. Appreci unappreciated sets off our ner nervous system. Abandoned. All of these words are kind of trigger words for us. Um, and if we're not aware of it, and we don't actually scrutinise it, which often we don't. These things just happen. We just think about these things. Uh, we don't actually pay attention to it. So if we don't pay attention, it's going to influence our decisions subconsciously. So that I think is, you know, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny if you give it a bit more thought, but we often just don't take Don't that give it step. a bit more thought, yeah. Yeah, I, we don't, we don't. And the thing about trigger words as well that you've just said I was talking to a friend and she has worn the same earrings since having her ears pierced years ago, always worn the same earrings. And she was debating getting some new earrings. And she said, but I don't know because these ones have been so loyal, which, and that's another word that people value loyalty, of course. Yep. And of course, yep. if I said to her, do your earrings, you know, did they have any choice in sticking around this whole time? Are they really loyal? She would have, you know, she's she was wasn't acting. She would have laughed it off and gone, yeah. what are you talking about? But yeah, that's a strong word as well, isn't it? Yeah. They're loyal. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it, and I think a lot of if we were really to analyze, if we were really to sit down and kind of pay attention to the words they're often things that we value in others and in ourselves or they're things that we seek out. Yeah. It's just, it, and that's that's the way. I don't want to be treated that way, so therefore I won't treat other things that I've given, you know, I've, I've bestowed human-like qualities to. I don't want to be lonely and rejected, so mm. I, d I don't want to make that pair of jeans feel lonely and rejected. Exactly, exactly. I find a lot of my clients, you know, they anthropomorphize um, insects and plants quite often, you know, and there's this real, real, um, you know, sense that the, everything has a right to live, you know, in peace and harmony, that kind of empathy for yeah. uh, living things. And it can go to some great, you know, some extreme lengths you know, oh, don't stand on the snails or, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't pull out the weeds or don't, you know, and it's, it's a very all encompassing thing because they don't feel that they're being loved yeah. and cherished and honoured like, and so they will do that for their veggie patch or, you know, the grasshoppers or whatever it is that lives in their backyard. Yeah. Could there be a link between anthropomorphism and acquiring as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that lonely greeting card that's, you know, must be bought and taken home so it can live with the other ones, <laughs> could, so it can belong, you know, that could definitely trigger acquiring. Or sometimes like seeing a sad lamp on the side of the road that looks like it has stories to tell or more life's, li life in it yet, 
you know, that's going to come home. Yeah. That's coming home with someone. And once it's in, and the hardest thing is, this is the, this is the crux of it. Once it's in the home, it will be even more difficult to let go of because now a new relationship has formed between you and the object. You now have a story. I picked you up on the side of the road, you know, it was raining and I made sure that you didn't get wet. And so it's this whole relationship that's built up. So it will make it twice as hard to let go of it. Yeah. Um, so that anthropomorphizing at the moment of acquiring you know that attachment to the possession at the moment of of acquiring you know is likely to have an exponentially you know more a bigger impact on your hoarding behaviors because it's going to be that much harder to let go of yeah so it's dealing with that acquiring before it comes in is important because there's the endowment effect i've done a whole episode on the endowment effect there's also, we've talked before, I can't remember the context, but about kind of somebody who, when shopping, would always buy like the most battered mm. thing on a shelf because they felt sad that nobody else would buy that one. And Yes. But also, I spent Christmas with friends and at one point, my friend whose house it was, was talking through some bits and bobs that were on her fireplace and saying like, oh, my mum crocheted that and, you know, I got this from here and there was a little story for each thing. Mm. But that was a total of five things, whereas hoarders have a little story for everything. I have a little – I pick up a random scrap of paper and I know the story and it mm. makes me feel more attached to it. And so what you're saying about when you bring something in from the cold, you know, when you <laughs> rescue it from the rain, I think hoarders create and remember those stories more than most. Yes. Yeah. Because I think there's that emotional connection that they're getting with the stuff, but not with people. And so therefore it, ha it's kind of, you know, even more powerful. Yeah. Uh, and that's how that attachment becomes more powerful. So it's kind of a chain reaction and, and, and it's, it's a self fulfilling kind of prophecy too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite fascinating. And it's, as we talked earlier, it's something that we don't want to stop but we do need to be aware of it and I think awareness and and paying attention to it can help yeah and the thing with I was having all these hoarding realizations at my friend's house at Christmas I also noticed that the things she was telling us the little stories backstories of they were all quite recent things my mum mm. crocheted this for me in the summer my, you know, and it struck me that she can have a thing with a story, but presumably at some point get rid of it because the things with the stories on the fireplace were newish things. And mm. it's not that she's never had things with stories before. Yeah, no. And so those things have gone, and that seems to be fine. Mm. Whereas yeah, and she she she's not feeling regret yeah. for those things. 
and you know, oh, that could be done. It was a kind of, oh, you can have things with stories and not keep them forever. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like, ah, okay, well, how does she do that? Yes. <laughs> how does that come about? Yeah, it's it, funny. It is very it? interesting, kind though. Of, yeah. Oh, that's how people live. Right. Got mm. it. <laughs> yep. So I know with other mental illnesses, anthropomorphism is sometimes deliberately used in kind of recovery, I guess. Someone with an eating disorder might separate themselves from their eating disorder. One of my friends called her eating disorder Ed for ED, so that they could say, that's not my thinking, that's what Ed says to create some distance between themselves and the dysfunctional thinking. Is there any way that that kind of approach could apply to hoarders or is that not really the same kind of thing? I do think kind of anthropomorphizing part of the brain or that dysfunctional entity could definitely be helpful. You know, that's just my anthro talking or that's hoarding talk. You know, it's almost kind of like the parts theory uh, in internal family systems, which is a type of um, individual psychotherapy, the idea that part of me is concerned that this sock is without a partner, but another part of me thinks it's ridiculous, crazy talk. You know, what does my wise mind or my, you know, right. my, my, my centre, the centre of me, what does my authentic self think? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do think that there is a way to kind of anthropomorphize parts of the mind of what's, what's coming up for us. Yeah. And being, and also being able to look at thoughts and feelings rather than from them can help significantly. I think we've talked about this before. The diffusion technique that we use in ACT is, as you were saying, a way to create that distance between stimulus and response. And that's where, how we make change. We need to, break the connection we don't want it to be too close together something stimulates something the response we need to try and be more aware of more aware of what our behaviors whether they be thoughts feelings physical actions we need to make that gap so that we can kind of ponder and look at it and think ah I'm doing that again that's hoarding talk again that's interesting you know that curiosity yeah yeah I sometimes ask myself, my CBT therapist didn't like my wording, but I sometimes ask myself, what would a normal person do in this situation? (laughs) You know what? That's actually like, that's one of the things that um, I've been meaning to write about in the newsletter about having a values, um, almost like a values sort of, model role model kind yeah, of thing exactly you know yeah. you know like yeah. what would whoever that person is that you highly respect your mother or you know um i don't know beyonce or whoever it might be you know rather than what would a normal person do what would that person that's my values role model do in this situation say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And also, even just thinking what, the whole wise mind idea that inside you there is that knowledgeable, unflappable, authentic self that is always there, but sometimes it's clouded by these other parts and we just need to kind of ask it, you know, yeah. what what would what, you know, what would be the wise mind choice in this instance? Something I do with friends a lot and they do with me is you know, when you ring someone up and go, can I just check something out with you? Because mm. I don't know if I'm overreacting or I don't know if I'm underreacting or I don't know if I've done something wrong and I can't work it out. Can I just check it out? Mm. And there's a real value in having people, first of all, you can approach, but who will also be honest and say, I think you are overreacting or say, no, I think you're absolutely justified or I think you did the right thing or the wrong thing. And it seems like an extension of that. If, mm. you know, what would a normal person do? Would a normal, if I, you know, I'm freaking out about throwing that away, just what would a normal person do? They would probably just throw it away. And it can sometimes get me over the last hurdle, really. Yeah. And it is, it's like, I, I do, I say this really often. It's the same for me. I have the same impulses. I have the same concerns. It's just that it's on a bigger scale, but I do, I sit there and I will, I'm an hour about throwing something out, you know, and I have to do the same thing. What about that? What about this is so hard for me? Yeah. Why is this one difficult? And often it will be something, you know, it'll be some, um, it cost a certain amount of money or someone gave yeah. it to me. There'll be all these things. And then I have to really kind of give myself a chance to sort of weigh it up. It's not, I just can't just throw things out easily either yeah yeah <laughs> so it's it's really interesting it's just the volume and it's the it's the number of times you have to make those decisions that yeah really take a toll and the loudness of the doubts maybe maybe yeah yes yeah the loudness of the doubts and perhaps also 
maybe uh, reflecting on when it when it has been a good idea. Maybe the error, you know, the the not wanting to make mistakes yeah. is louder than for me where I'd go. Oh, look, remember that time you kept that thing and you never used it. Just you know, maybe your fear of making mistakes is louder. And I think that's something that hoarders really struggle with that fear of making mistakes, the perfectionism. Um, I don't want to need this later. So those are very loud. And I suspect as well, there's something about if I throw something away and regret it, that feels giant. Whereas mm. a lot of people, if they throw something away and regret it, they will just go, okay, well, next time I won't, <laughs> you know, something and That's right. move on. It's it, again, loudness, the loudness of that kind of, of regret rather than yeah. the thousand times we threw something away and it was fine. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I do. I do. I do agree with that assessment. I think that's true. So given that we can't and as you said shouldn't Mm. even try to get rid of our own anthropomorphism what can we as hoarders do to understand the role it plays in our hoarding behaviors i think what we need to first be able to understand what the features of inanimate objects that trigger us Uh, you know, to attribute human-like qualities to stuff. What are the features of those things? So one of the things is movement, (laughs) behaviour. One of the things that we, that indicates to us agency is things that move. So even a dot moving across a screen makes us attribute agency. So um, if something avoids obstacles or chases something else, then we think it has a mind of its own. And neuroimaging studies have shown that watching um animate shapes moving in a goal-directed way engages parts of the brain that detect biological motion so um and also other areas that are implicated in judging others mental states are triggered even the imagined movements of something you know you you didn't expect something you didn't expect, like you didn't see a step or a tree root, that can cause you to attribute blame to to that object. Yes. Uh, so we've got all these things that are... <laughs> yeah, someone I know who is dyspraxic and bumps into things a lot and falls over a lot does believe that a particular doorframe in her house hates her. That doorframe mm. hates me. <laughs> yeah. And also what you're saying about movement, one of the studies I read... They showed people just some dots moving around a screen and asked them about it. And they had whole stories about that dot was a bully and that mm. dot was, you know, it, and it was just dots on a screen. Yeah. 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 And not only do we attribute agency, but as you've just demonstrated, we create stories around everything and that's just human nature as yeah. well. And we've always got a story about why something happened. I think if we're kind of aware of that, if we can, if we can recognize it as we're in the moment. Yeah. That's really important. But the other thing we, we took, we mentioned earlier, we see faces everywhere. I've got a friend with an Instagram account of just pics of faces she's seen on the footpath 
or in tree trunks and other random places. She just can't help it. She'll see something. Oh, that looks like a face snap. There's a name for it. Is it pareidolia, something like yes, that? Yes, pareidolia. That's exactly what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. And some people have it more than others. Um, I see faces mm. everywhere. I'm very much. But again, like this is the result of evolution and our reliance on others to survive, of course. I mean, faces are the first things that babies recognize. So we and babies process... recognize more faces than adults. Yeah. Recognize yeah. more people. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and the thing about it makes complete sense because they are 100% reliant, reliant. on someone else i mean that's part of our was part of our evolutionary journey that okay we had to have more fragile babies in order to have bigger heads with more brain capacity so you know babies rely on us completely and that's one of the things that they definitely um that definitely emerges that whole faces recognizing more faces than than adults i think Product designers do it deliberately to oh. some degree. You know, I look at cars. A lot of cars yes. have faces on the front, don't they? Um, yep. You know, the headlights and the, it's, and especially, I guess partly it's trend related. Like there's a big trend for kind of, you know, the Japanese style, cute, kawaii type face mm. things and everything looks cute currently. Mm. But I suspect as well as it being trend-related, product designers and marketers know that it sells stuff because we go, yeah, but that car's cute, so I'm going to get that car or that whatever it is um, just looks cute. Exactly. Cute is huge and it kind of taps into our nurturing selves. We want to, you know... (laughs) look after it and but I think it does backfire sometimes because I was reading an article uh, today about you know uh, individuals that give their car a name um, who also feel like it's you know got a face my my car's called Izzy I'm actually thinking about selling Izzy at the moment and it is very 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 difficult because I've named that car yeah and I've yeah. had that car nearly 10 years and yeah. I'm now going oh but Izzy, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Yeah. And they're realizing that sometimes being on the other side of anthropomorphism might reduce the the rate of repurchase. So they've tied themselves in a little bit of mm-hmm. a in a little bit of a bind. But you know, they'll find a way to get out of it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> they're not gonna they're not gonna allow that to happen. But technology, you know, things look like yes. People and the whole cuteness, um, all of those elements are just, uh, they encourage us to buy, they encourage us to save objects. It, it really is. They're playing with our evolutionary biology, etc. Yeah. And thinking about the voice assistants that most of us use in one form or another, whether it's Alexa or Siri, or um, I'm going to trigger mine by just saying it, but in my case, <laughs> hey, Google. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, these things increasingly run our lives and they have the answer to all sorts. And my friend's kid, little boy, in the they were in the car 
and she heard him say from the back seat, hey, Siri, I need a wee. <laughs> because he's just grown no. up with Siri being in charge of a lot of things in the house. Wow. Yeah. <gasps> wow. So to him, as a small boy who's grown up with it, but to all of us, they're kind of a little human presence that has a lot of answers for us. They can do our little tasks. My brother-in-law, when the first thing he did when he set Siri up was turn it to a male voice Mm. because he didn't want their son growing up with him barking instructions at a woman. Woman, right? Yeah. Whereas the first thing I did was turn Google to a female voice because I didn't want a man telling me what to do. What to do. It's very, very, very interesting. And yet it's just a voice in my phone. You know, it's It's completely electronic. She doesn't have a personality. If you ask her to tell you a joke, it's a terrible joke. So there's not (laughs) any of those things that we want from a human. And yet they are little people in our lives. Yes, yes. And we we do think they can be vindictive and, um, you know... (laughs) Disappointed in us, like disappointed in us, like your poor sat nav. (laughs) Exactly. Oh man. So yes, sorry, Um, you were talking about yeah faces and yeah. I just the area called the fusiform face area. I, (laughs) I um, face like objects actually activate a part of the brain called the fusiform gyrus, and I'm just shouting out to my kids because they love it when I talk about the fusiform. Not, but <laughs> mom, stop talking about it. But it's the area <laughs> called the fusiform face area that responds strongly to faces in an unconscious way. So before we can even say burnt toast, we recognize that there's a face like pattern on something. It just, it, yeah. it's just, and it's quite often Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's quite often Jesus. And that's the other thing, you know, the, the whole uh, idea of um, higher powers, God, etc. Yeah. You know, this all links into anthropomorphism yeah. and also the, um, you know, when we feel out of control, we want to find things that give us control. So, you know, religio- religiosity religiosity is that how you yeah, say I think so. yeah is really is 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 linked in with all of this kind of um uh magical thinking in in that way but you're right i've re- i've uh, was thinking about cars and faces that was one of my first i was like oh i don't like oh that one looks angry oh that oh that one looks Some really have happy angry headlights they do yeah. yep yeah. totally totally brownie hey Frowny. Frowny. Yeah, see, like the mini just makes you happy, right? <laughs> like the mini came out yeah. and it marketers just hit the nail on the head. It is a happy car. And I still want a mini. I still I do too. Like, Especially like I really an original mini, like the the, yeah. the old ones. I mean, I oh, wouldn't yeah. turn down a new one, but you know, the, but the, yeah, the, the, the really, old one. Yeah. So cute. Yeah. So cute. Yeah. We just want to, you know, look after it. Yeah. But the other one is morality. And when there's no human to blame, like your friend, we'll blame the inanimate objects yeah. when disaster strikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that stupid thing tripped me up. 
Uh, yeah. Exactly. But apparently we've tried and convicted and punished inanimate objects in history, like bells and statues and baseballs and stuff. Like we've 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 put bells some bell somewhere hit someone in the head and they died, so that bell wasn't allowed to be rung for thirty years or something. And there've been <laughs> animals executed, haven't there, over yeah. the years. Got to kill the can't think of any examples now, but yeah, there were definitely cases of of oh, and also animals being elected. We had a wasn't there a wasn't there a Google horse this. that was a pope? Yeah, and there was a I'm sure there was a monkey that was a mare. Let me Google this. <laughs> yeah, Hartlepool elected a monkey as a mayor. That's bizarre. I don't know how or why. It was a mascot, a monkey mascot. Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> what is the world coming to? What is the world coming to? But yeah, animals have definitely been executed um, for crimes as well. And Yeah. Oh, but, you know, autonomous behaviour, the appearance of faces and participation in harmful events are all signs of agency. So if we know this, we can kind of use it to our advantage. And so it's that thing, isn't it, of the more aware we are of where our thinking goes a bit wonky, the more we can challenge it. If yeah. we know there's a pattern, then what we were saying earlier about these things don't stand up to scrutiny, but we just don't scrutinise them. If we do start scrutinising, okay, what is this thinking I'm having here? Is that really logical? Is that really rational? Does it stand up to scrutiny? I feel like this bag will feel sad if I give it away. Is that actually true? Mm. And it Mm. doesn't take much thinking to realize it isn't that's not to say you won't still have that gut reaction yeah but once you start saying okay let's have a look in the bag to see if there's a brain in there anywhere (laughs) you're not if there's a brain in your bag you've got more problems than hoarding exactly (laughs) exactly yeah we we have more problems if we actually do think there's a brain in there (laughs) <laughs> so can we turn if we if we are becoming more aware of this as a form of magical thinking and something that's not bad in itself but that can exacerbate some of the existing questionable thoughts that we can have as hoarders can we turn that growing understanding into positive change yeah, I actually was thinking about this and I've thought about it for a little while, especially um, it was one of the elements of the KonMari method that resonated with me when I first read Marie Kondo's book. And it was that whole idea of thanking inanimate objects. And this kind of plays into anthropomorphism but uses it for good. So yeah. it's really that, – that was one of the things that I kind of went, ah, that that kind of makes sense. So contemplating – what the object has done for you. Shoes that walked you around Europe for three months or a pillow that supported your sleep for eight hours for five years or a dress that washed you out and now you know that puce just isn't your (laughs) colour. Yeah, that, for example, allows us to kind of recognise the place the object 
had in our life and the service it's provided and give us that kind of opportunity to let it go in peace. It might go to a new owner who looks amazing in puce or it might be repurposed as a puppy bed at the vet clinic or whatever or maybe broken down and recycled. Touching the objects and thanking them for their service can become a ritual that helps you let go. Um, One of the things that I've, I've thought myself is really playing into that anthropomorphism and saying, well, what kind of life does the object have living with me? You know, what, what, is it tired and ready to bow out gracefully or is it gorgeous and it's just languishing under dozens of other items and it's never used? Does it really like being squashed at the bottom of a pile? Exactly. It's, exactly. It's how I've justified giving things to charity shops before. Like, I am not appreciating this thing and it deserves to be appreciated. Somebody exactly. else can appreciate it. That's exactly right. I mean, was the imperfect, you know, was it an imperfect relationship and the object was abusive or made you feel uncomfortable? You know, a pair of shoes or you know, whatever. It's like, or a corset or a bra or something that just you just want to throw it out. But find out. Find out. So it kind of plays into if it's something that you really find hard to break the back of and just recognizing it and the awareness isn't helping, perhaps go with it and really take it to that nth degree. You know, keep keep going down that path. The Comari thing is interesting. When I first read the book, when it first came out, I was quietly a little bit scathing about the idea of thanking mm. things. I just thought it was like fine if you want to, but ridiculous. Um mm. because I was thinking of kind of it being just like an extra step. I've got enough to get rid of without adding a step to getting rid of it. But yeah. what I, what I found is that if I do it very selectively, very selectively, like most of the time, I don't think it is something useful for me. Yeah. Recently, one of the things I've been doing is putting all my shoes in the same place. Because if you had asked me six months ago, if I was a shoe person, I would have said, no, I've only, I've only got one or two pairs of shoes, not interested in shoes. I'm not that kind of woman. Some people aren't, some people aren't. I'm just not. But what I've learned as I've been putting them all in one place is a more accurate way to describe it is that at any given time, I only ever wear one or two pairs of shoes. I've only ever got one or two pairs of shoes in action, right? But actually, I own many, many, many pairs of shoes. And I established two reasons for that. One is shoe because I wear shoes until they die, because I just have one or two pairs. Once a pair is really worn out, I'm very attached to it. Mm. So part of the shoe pile was shoes I've worn and worn and worn and worn and then couldn't get rid of because even though they were unwearable, I loved them. And the other kind of shoe clutter was shoes I bought that didn't fit, but I kept them because I wanted them to fit, right? Mm. And so once I'd established that with this growing pile of shoes, I 
was able to, with the ones that didn't fit, just kind of look at them and say, I really wish you'd fitted, but you don't. And so I'm going to give you to somebody who they will fit because these are great shoes. And then the pairs of shoes that I had worn and worn and worn until they had no soles left, as in soles on the bottom, because they had <laughs> they had souls like heart. Heart. <laughs> what I did to them was just kind of take a moment and say, you served me so well and I loved you so much, but it's time kind of thing. And then I could throw them away. And it was so interesting because I'd gone from completely scathing of the idea of thanking your old pairs of shoes to it being an important way to help me get rid of them. And um, apart from the solo shoes where I haven't found their other half, this, those two approaches of either, I wish you'd fitted, but you don't, so you can go, or I loved you dearly, thank you, now you can go, is actually now part of my process of dealing with shoes. Yeah, and and bringing all of those shoes together is kind of that first part, part it isn't is it? It is so powerful to yep. see them. I've, I've said this so many times, and it, I don't know why I've only recently applied it to shoes, but like with like is so powerful because when you're in the shop going, those scissors are really cheap and that I should get those scissors because they're a bargain – but then you can visualize your scissors pile. It's so much easier to say, okay, I, I really don't need the scissors. Yeah. And yeah, that is very powerful. Yeah. It is. And yeah. And I'm, I was delayed applying that to shoes. I think because I genuinely believed I only had a pair or two. Yeah. 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 But now I'm applying it to shoes and have been doing, it's a process. I come across shoes, you know, as I, as I tidy and as I de-hoard a bit. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, putting them all where they're supposed to be. I My weird dilemma of the week a while ago <clears throat> was that I'd finally decided that a particular pair of shoes could go and then I could only find one of them and I didn't know what to do with that one so that when I eventually found the other one, I would still know where the first one was. Mm. And one listener said, put it where the shoes go and then you'll know where the, and mm. I was just like, I love you for thinking I have a place where shoes go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love exactly. you for that. Yeah, but, now, that is just... <laughs> but now I do have a place where yeah, shoes go. And, um, yeah, it's so interesting. And but... you've probably found that other matching have, shoe it's gone. and yeah. it's gone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that is, you know, like not being able to find the matching, whatever it is, you know, that whole I have to have a set and I must pass it on as a set is really also holds a lot of people back. And that's one of the kind of autistic traits that I've found in a number of yeah. clients who really struggle. They need, they want to get the whole set of something and even sometimes they even are happy to like sell it on if they've got the whole set but the whole process of of creating and completing the set is so important for them that yeah 
doesn't actually matter what happens afterwards. They will actually sell that series of books yeah. or those figurines or whatever. But w- when they don't have every single one, they will still continue to hunt. It's, it's Yeah, I know I've kind of – I can't remember what it was. I think it was jars or something. I needed a jar. And then in the shop, they had jars in sets of – they they had the same jar in like three different colours – and I remember thinking, well, I should probably get all three, knowing I needed one, but they went together. So surely I need all three. And going, well, I don't even like the third colour. So maybe I could get the two. Oh, but it's not complete then. You know, I, I needed a jar and I could have, you know, it was a dilemma. And you could have walked out with three and then yeah. had to find a home for, for yeah. all three and never use them. It's, yeah. It is it's, it's, it is a dilemma. It is often a dilemma for, for for people, especially those who do feel the need to complete that set. The other thing I guess we can do is recognise that we're projecting our own thoughts and feelings onto the object. So that can give us a huge insight into where we need to work on ourselves. Ah. Um, Verbalising your thoughts as you work through, like I've said before, you're, you're working with your possessions, that'll highlight to you the typical thoughts and feelings that you're projecting on your stuff. Those trigger words, the lonely, the unappreciated, that sort of stuff. These emotions and cognitions that pop up the most are the ones to focus on with journaling or with therapy. Um, if you think it looks like it has a face or you name an object, you just know it will be more difficult to part with. But remember that you can engage with the object and thank it for the times it supported you and let it go. That is one of the hardest things. If you do recognise it's got a face and you do give it a name, chances are it's a fait accompli. It will be harder to get rid of. But loneliness and isolation are really so common for um, those of us living with hoarding. And if you're able to recognize that you're using pets or stuffed toys or figurines, whatever it might be, to feel a sense of belonging and control because you have little human interaction. Maybe think about working with a counsellor you can trust who uses animal-assisted therapy or equine therapy, something along those lines, to slowly open yourself up to talking about yourself first with the animal um, and then with an understanding human, it can really help that step in between if you are, you know, if you really struggle opening up. The other thing to remember is stuff might be reliable, predictable and safe, but it can't call you out on your BS uh, or offer you another perspective. It can't hug you back or make you a cuppa. It really is just stuff. Yeah, that's the cold, hard truth. It is. It is. And we can attach meaning to it, but that's us, not the thing, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the hardest thing. It's just if you are anthropomorphizing to that level, then you're really in your own echo chamber because it's telling you, you know, <laughs> you're talking to that thing and it's giving you back what you gave it. So yeah. um, it's not going to give you a faithful representation of reality, <laughs> unfortunately. It's making me think of those toys that record what you say and then repeat it back to you. Mm. Oh, <laughs> that's gone deep. Whoa. That's really gone deep. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think <laughs> so. What you want to do is record. <laughs> I'm just a teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> That'd work. <laughs> and like with everything, everything about hoarding, it's all about proportionality, isn't it? Um, it is fine to have a teddy bear in your bed that has loved you since you were born and will love you till you die. That is fine. It is not fine to have 300 teddy bears that mean you can't get onto your bed and you sleep on the couch. Yeah, totally. It is all about proportion. It's all about volume and it's all about how we can break uh, some of those habits around obsessively acquiring those things that you know in the moment give us that little (laughs) you know dopamine hit the little bump we've got to try and break that habit and find something else and hopefully find it with other humans and what you said about verbalizing it as well I find there's something quite powerful if I'm being a bit ridiculous but digging my heels in there's something about saying my thinking out loud that really highlights how ridiculous I'm being. Something that's a thought might feel okay, but once you say it out loud, you kind of have to go, yeah, I'm not being reasonable here. Yep, yep. And some, and there's something about saying it yourself, not having someone else say it to you, Yeah, something about it coming out of your own mouth that just makes all the difference. Yeah. Um, and that's why often, you know, I don't, I don't have to say stuff. I could just let people now tell yeah. me a la- say aloud what you're thinking about these things. And it's just incredible how they will talk themselves around and say, Oh, really? Yeah. And it's gone. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just saying it aloud in your, on your own. Doesn't, you don't have to have anyone to hear you. It's about you hearing it, your own voice. That's the, that's the difference. Amazing. So interesting. This is such an interesting topic. I know. It's it's crazy interesting. And I just, it's one of the areas that there's been a, a lot more um, uh, research into lately. And I think for hoarding, it's, it's, it, it is quite problematic. But knowing that it's not something that we, you know, that we can change so much as we can manage, it, it makes that feel a little bit more I guess it feels more, I don't know what the word is. It just feels like we've got more chance of learning from other people who, you know, who've managed this type of problem. It just feels more, um, you know, we're all in the same soup. Uh, we're all doing the same things. It's just that, you know, others others maybe have recognised it sooner before it's yeah. got, so, uh, got so overwhelming. There was a lot more research into it than I expected. Often when I'm Mm. researching episodes, I have to look up the topic on its own and learn about that and then apply it to hoarding. And then apply it to hoarding. Because there isn't research into the thing and hoarding together. Whereas Mm. for this, there was a surprising amount into anthropomorphism and hoarding. hoarding. So um, that's it's really good and interesting that that's happening. Yeah. So, Jan, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? 
Now, they could go to Instagram where I am at stuffology, or sorry, at stuff underscoreology, or Twitter at stuff underscoreology, or Pinterest. Come and check out my Pinterest stuff at stuff underscoreology. I have a Pinterest account as well. I'm pretty happy with my Pinterest. It's pretty, it's pretty fancy. So come on over. Check I don't me know out. if I follow you there or not because I tend to, oh. to be honest, I tend to post more than I. Um, yeah, it used to be a following thing, right? Everyone yeah, used yeah. to follow, and I've got like nine thousand followers or something. But then it just it's stayed stagnant. It's a bit different now. It's, it's changed. I in the early days, I found it's a bit. In the early days, it was quite straightforward, and now it feels mm. a bit more involved. But yeah, sorry, there's also so, a lot of advertising. Yes. So, mm. what's your Pinterest username? I will make sure I include that in the show notes. At stuff underscore ology, and then my Facebook uh, handle is at stuffology consulting. And you can always email me jan at stuffology.com.au. And do go to Jan's website and subscribe to her email list, which is a weekly gem of knowledge and insight. I'm a big fan. Yes. I'll be back on, I'll be back on board. This week, I haven't written one for a couple of weeks over the holiday period, but there'll be one this weekend. Back on track. Yep. Thank you as ever. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Do you want to be a dehoarding darling? You can be now at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash darling. If you love the podcast and want a bit extra, you can finally sign up to be a dehoarding darling. Members will get an exclusive monthly post with an additional top tip, some podcast and music recommendations, and a personal update from me about how things are going. Find out the full details at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash darling. So my top tip this week is a little clip from the Simple On Purpose podcast. And she makes a really good point, which I've touched on before, but it's worth reiterating. Have a listen. If we keep showing up the same way, things keep staying the same. Actually, they probably worsen, right? Because of the compound effect. If we keep treating our body in the same way, maybe we're not sleeping, not moving, not drinking water, then we don't actively improve our health. If we keep hating our job, going into it with a chip on our shoulder, we don't ever get career satisfaction. This whole idea of creating my own future really hit home for me when I thought about like these little habits, this, these ways I'm showing up every day in my life. And this is the concept of compound effect by Darren Hardy. That is what we are doing every day consistently adds up one way or another. It could add up into a positive outcome if it's habits we really like, and it could add up to a negative income, uh, outcome if they are habits we that are not really helping us. So consider where you are right now, staying where you are right now, doing the same, talking to people in the same way, talking to yourself in the same way, taking care of your home or your health the same way. As time goes on, what will the compound effect of that be? So let me know what you think. It's something I've been trying to use in my big pile of mental resources I dip into when I'm struggling with something. Um, it's something I try and look at and think, 
just remind myself of because it's true. I mean, I I can't think of any arguments against it. Hopefully, by absorbing it, we can make positive changes. All right. Thank you for listening. And I will speak to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding podcast. You can find more online at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at That Hoarder and on Facebook at Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder. To find out more about how you can support this podcast and the overall project, go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk forward slash support. And do subscribe to this podcast so you make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Getting professional support as a hoarder can make all the difference. Having somebody on your side who can help you to learn about yourself and make progress in your home is invaluable, but finding an affordable therapist can be a nightmare. Accessing therapy online gives you the option to find the right person who doesn't even have to be in the same country as you, never mind the same town or city. OnlineTherapy.com offers a weekly live session with a CBT therapist for individuals or couples. It offers unlimited messaging, worksheets, a journal, and even yoga and meditation videos to help you cope. I have a special link for you that will get you a discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. As you know, I've had CBT, and two years later, I still use the realizations I had about myself, as well as the skills I learned. Listeners tell me that you've started to use some of the skills I've shared on this podcast. CBT is a therapy with a broad evidence base that is widely used for a range of mental health difficulties, including hoarding. OnlineTherapy.com specializes in CBT, and if you're not happy with your therapist, you can change to a new one with the click of a button. And prices start at $40 a week which, if you've seen a therapist before, you'll know is incredibly cost-effective. What's more, if you use my link, you can get a whopping 20% off your first month. So sign up at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy and get 20% off your first month with your new online CBT therapist.